Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We have to give the signal that uh, those who are at the bottom, those who are very much exposed to the risks of this crisis, they are not the forgotten ones. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard EU Jobs Commissioner Nicola Schmidt. He presented a plan this week that he says would make sure workers across the EU get decent minimum wages. And we'll hear more about the whole debate around that plan later in the podcast. You'll also hear from not one but two candidates who want to lead the OECD, Cecilia Malmström from Sweden and Matthias Korman from Australia. But first, let's check in with our podcast panel. Okay, so welcome to Reem in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And Matt in Berlin, near Berlin. In Brandenburg. Brandenburg. Wow. Living, uh, living dangerously. Well, I guess you're allowed still to move, right? Are you? Yeah, there are very few restrictions on movement uh, so far. Anyway. Okay, yeah. okay. Good. We won't dive in too much to COVID uh, this week, I think, um, because we talk about it a lot and we're sure to talk about it again. And I think maybe our listeners would uh, appreciate uh, a break from it. But I just wanted to give a a shout out or actually call out a a rival political podcaster, European politics podcaster, Angela Merkel, who also does uh, a weekly podcast. And to make her point about how the advice is the same, she just kind of gave a new intro to her podcast and then played last week's again. And um, I'm willing to give Angela Merkel personally a bit of a pass because she is, I can imagine, quite busy, you know, running the free world and, and Germany and everything. Oh, my pandemic. God. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, she's what I'm saying is she's very busy and many people would see her that way. Others wouldn't. Others in Brandenburg, for example. But my point was really her content people have got to do better. I think her producers could at least have like remixed it with a kind of hip hop backing track or something, you know, just to just to maybe reach a new audience. Und so folgt jetzt noch einmal der Podcast vom vergangenen Samstag. Liebe Mitbürgerinnen und liebe Mitbürger, spätestens seit dieser Woche wissen wir, wir sind jetzt in einer sehr ernsten Phase der Corona-Pandemie. Corona-Pandemie. So I want to tell our listeners that we would never 
resort to that kind of thing. It's new content every week. So, Matt, I think you wanted to talk first about a speech that made some waves in uh, Berlin over the last few days. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure that it really made a lot of waves, which is unfortunate because I wish that it had made more waves. But I think it's a significant speech that was delivered by AKK, as she's known here, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who is the German defense minister and still the leader of the CDU. And this speech was really about the transatlantic relationship and specifically the German-U.S. relationship where I think, you know, for the first time in a long time, we have a senior German official here really kind of spelling out in a lot of detail how important the U.S. link is for Germany and how it really is in Germany's core interest to maintain this alliance and to do everything that it can to make sure that uh, it's not impaired in the coming years. And it is a bit of a reality check, I think, for the German establishment at a time when you have a lot of discussion, especially in other parts of Europe. I'm, I'm looking at Bream here about uh, strategic autonomy and these kinds of issues. And I, I think, you know, people who really understand this stuff, and I think that uh, Kram Kambauer as defense minister is one of these people now, uh, you know, really kind of acknowledge that this is just not a viable option. You know, given the chance to put some actual meat on the bone of strategic autonomy from a security standpoint, the EU decided not to do that. You know, if you look at the in terms of the defense, the, uh, the defense fund, for example, for the defense yeah. fund uh, is one example. But just generally, I mean, you know, it's very easy to say, yeah, we need technological autonomy after you know decades of the U.S. dominating the the tech sector. I mean, that ship has sailed. Mm, um, so. I just want to point out to our dear listeners that this is the second time in two weeks that Matt Karnitschik sounds a lot like Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. This is because Macron would say the same. It's like, it's not enough to do words. We need to turn it. But he doesn't know that the ship has sailed. <laughs> well, maybe. Well, he maybe thinks he, he thinks can turn around the ship, ship, unlike maybe you. Maybe he's got another ship ready to, ready to go. He needs to turn um, around his ship after I read your story. Well, there we go. That leads very neatly in to the, uh, you know, the good ship Elysee, if you like, and to a big piece which uh, we published this week from Reem, a look at the diplomatic cell in the Elysee, the, the foreign policy team that advises the president. Uh, Reem, let's just talk through the story a bit for our listeners. Obviously, we encourage them to read it online uh, in full in politico.eu. Well, let's start with, with, with the Elysee, with the cell. It's kind of like uh, Macron's diplomatic commando squad. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of power and influence over French foreign policy. But basically, it's less than a dozen people. And it's led by his diplomatic advisor, currently Emmanuel Bonne, and he has a deputy. Her name is Alice Ruffaut. Emmanuel Bonne and Alice Ruffaut took over the leadership of the cell in May 2019. And since then, there have been quite a few changes that have happened, including uh, two alarming uh, departures in less than a year Two of the advisors who work under them have been ordered to go on doctor-mandated sick leaves. And that is extremely unusual, even though uh, people in these circles obviously are used to working very long hours under very, very high pressure. What are the, the accusations against them when it comes to uh, you know, how they manage and run that team? 
what's really striking is that more like dozens of people have been talking about this now. You know, my piece is not the only piece that has been written about this. Uh, and so that's what's striking is that this is these are accusations coming from a, a large number of people. And what they alleged is that Bonne and Ruffo one more than the other, depending on what the allegation is. But let's just say, you know, Bonne and Ruffo have led a cell where there's a lot of dysfunction, there's a toxic and aggressive work environment, there's bullying, uh, whereby Bonne or Ruffo, depending on the issue, uh, you know, would yell at their subordinates to the point of reducing them to tears. These are people who are in their 40s and 50s. These are not, you know, young people. These are not newbies. These are people with experience who are reduced to tears. Uh, also uh, giving one kind of order and then giving a counter order, uh, but also also kind of belittling their team for not delivering what it is that they wanted them to deliver, even though their instructions aren't necessarily very clear. Uh, there's accusations of backstabbing. There's accusations of, you know, blackballing their own people. So working just the two of them uh, separately from, from the rest of their team, not including them as they should. Uh, there's accusations of, no, of them not working well with other parts of the Elysee. There's accusations of them not dealing well with the foreign ministry, not coordinating, not communicating, or even worse, uh, sometimes on purpose, shutting people out. And the accusations are so bad and unusual, because obviously in these circles, uh, there's a lot of, you know, gossip, rumors, turf wars, that's kind of usual. But what's unusual is that the Elysee has decided to trigger an external investigation of what's happened within the cell. And that is really noteworthy. Right. I was going to say that. that. That's one thing. It's something they call an audit, but they've called in sort of external consultants to basically look at how this place is run. And I think, as you say, that speaks to the fact that this goes beyond the run of the mill tensions that you might get in any kind of high pressure uh, environment. We should also say that Bonn and Rufo flatly deny all the allegations against them, all the serious allegations against them, despite the fact that they do come from uh, multiple sources. Uh, I think you alone, uh, Reem, spoke to about a dozen people for this article. And as you say, other articles have been written drawn, drawing on other sources. What about the diplomatic community in, in Paris? What do they make of the cell? So this is what was very striking to me. Um, and this is an angle that only us at Politico really covered. I spoke to multiple ambassadors multiple high-level diplomats from partner countries who were posted in Paris who uh, brought up some serious issues uh, in their view in terms of how they were being treated and are being treated by the diplomatic cell. You know, some accuse them of being very rude, of, uh, you know, being disres disrespectful, of not, you know, establishing the kinds of diplomatic relationships that should be established. And, you know, one ambassador in particular from a G20 country, uh, you know, shared a very terse text message exchange between him and Bun uh, after a very high level official from this G20 ambassador's country had traveled a long way to come to France uh, for meetings, including a very important meeting with Bun. And then with less than 24 hours notice, Bun's office tried to you know, cancel it, postpone it. And uh, the ambassador had to really fight hard to get the, uh, the meeting just rescheduled. And what was very interesting is that Bun didn't apologize in that text message exchange. Instead, he just said he reminded the ambassador uh, in kind of a dismissive way that 
He works for the French president, and the French president requested his presence during the time allotted for that meeting. And, you know, that takes precedence, and they'll be giving him another sort of scheduled time, and he's he's free to take it or not. And there was another instance where, you know, I got a French diplomatic cable in which meetings at the Élysée are accused of undercutting Macron's foreign policy or Macron's, uh, you know, messaging uh, when it comes to Turkey ahead of a an E3, so France, UK, Germany summit uh, with Turkey in March. And that's really unusual as well. Okay, and we should just, as I said, uh, they deny the allegations against them. You know, what do they say or does the Elise say anything more than that? I mean, how do they kind of explain, um, you know, the nature of these allegations and the fact that they've got to such a level that, you know, an audit has been ordered into the into the work of this uh, diplomatic cell? So, as you said, you know, we uh, were very keen on getting uh, the Elysee to comment uh, in detail on all of these allegations. And there is a bit of a sort of wholesale blanket denial and an attempt to to minimize them, to say that uh, these are high-pressure jobs, uh, these are very demanding positions that uh, the French president is demanding, and that uh, these are just things that happen, but that they're not as bad as people are saying, and that uh, quite the contrary, Bonn and Rufo have never refused to meet with any G20 ambassador and have never, you know, been rude to them. And in fact, um, I asked the Élysée whether Bonn and Rufo are planning on resigning, and it was a very firm no. In fact, uh, Rufo's portfolio is set to be expanded, uh, in which she is going to be given a new layer of formal responsibility. Matt, um, what do you make of it and what do you think um, Berlin is making of it? it? It it does suggest that this isn't a tight ship and to have these kinds of allegations come out of, of this severity, you know, to the degree that they have to start an investigation or an audit, as you call it, is, is, is pretty extraordinary. And I'm kind of surprised that Macron, who is you know, said to be so detail-oriented and on top of all of these types of things, you know, has allowed this to fester to this point. You know, also, if you just, if you look at the work, the foreign policy work of the French administration over the past few years, they, they haven't exactly covered themselves in glory. You know, I, I realize that the situation with Turkey is uh, very difficult and volatile, but for Angela Merkel to have to step in and play the mediator here really kind of says it all. So these officials, they might be very ambitious, as you know, most people in these high positions in any country are, but they don't seem to have been particularly successful. Okay, right. We'll uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Reem, Matt, thanks for now, and we'll be back uh, later in the podcast. Obviously, we encourage everyone once again to read Reem's piece. We'll be back uh, later uh, with our recommendations of streaming, reading, uh, listening to get you through what is becoming more and more like another lockdown. Now let's focus for a few minutes on the race to lead the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's the Paris-based organisation that's at the centre of a lot of big global economic debates right now, including on digital taxes. We heard a couple of weeks ago from one candidate to take over, Estonian President Kirsty Kaljulaid. Now let's hear highlights from interviews with two more candidates who spoke recently to our own David Herzenhorn. The first may be a familiar name for our EU listeners. Cecilia Malmström is Sweden's candidate, and she's spent 20 years in EU politics as a commissioner, a minister, and member of the European Parliament. 
David asked her why she's interested in this job. Well, OECD is an organisation that, despite the decline of multilateralism and the weakening of a lot of other international organisations lately, is still around. It is highly respected. It has been there for the corona crisis. It is producing reports and, and help for member states in their reforms and in their actions. Uh, so I've always been impressed by the work they do. I mean, setting norms and standards, reaching out far beyond the 37 members and also, you know, producing facts, policy, peer reviews, evidence to support member states in very important reforms. And that will be so important as we come out of, of the COVID crisis on a short term basis, you know, really helping member states for a green, innovative, digital and inclusive uh, recovery. And, and OECD is very well suited to do that. Talk to us a little bit about the, I mean, one of the big issues, obviously, and we heard uh, recently the decision to postpone uh, work on the digital tax, uh, but everybody looking to the OECD to do something that, again, where maybe it, it has been too controversial to do just in the EU alone. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, has very strong feelings about this, given uh, its position in big tech. Your views on how would you bring everybody together and what, what is the standard that's needed uh, when it comes to figuring out a way to tax uh, these big digital companies? Well, OECD has been working on this for quite some time now. And, and you're right, it's extremely complicated. There's the political dimension, but it's also the technical. How, how do you do this? How do you get it right? What is a digital company? Most of the companies today have a digital dimension. So you can't really define that is digital and that, that is not. So what the OECD is trying to do is to set up some sort of system. How can you have a modern taxing architecture to avoid double taxation and to solve conflicts for multinational companies. And they're also working on some sort of minimum tax base as well. Of course, if they were to succeed to do that, uh, that would be historical. Because the alternative, of course, is that the EU does it alone. And I know that lots of brainy people in the Commission are working on different proposals here, which would be go further in a way, but it would be only EU. And the US know they know that something will happen here. So they, they much more prefer a global solution, of course, that, that, than the EU one. So, so I think we can get them uh, to, to engage by before after these elections, where, when we know a little bit clearer. And I imagine there, there are some skills that, that you developed as a trade negotiator that might prove useful. Well, as a trade commissioner, of course, I have some experience in getting people together, identify the red lines, the offensive, defensive interest, trying to find compromises, trying to, to you know, try to really understand where everybody comes from to see if we can find common ground. And, you know, we, we made quite a lot of trade deals and other agreements. So I hope I could use that. Of course, every case is unique, but I hope I can use that if I were to be appointed secretary general. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the kind of conversation you can see the, the OECD being involved in as this pandemic uh, situation unfolds. But there will be changes. I mean, first of all, you have the recovery whenever that happens. And that has to be, you know, it has to be green, sustainable recovery. You have to link economics and ecology in a much more of a sophisticated way that you've done in, in, in the past. And here I think OECD can do more work. And you also have to make sure that you don't just put the money in black holes, that it's innovative, that it's digital, that it's future oriented and that it's inclusive. Because what we have seen in 
basically all countries of the world is that the cleavages, the, the inequalities within the countries, but between have increased. So here again, how do you create resilient, sustainable societies, not only the weeks after the crisis, but on a long term basis? And then you're absolutely right, because we have this changing of, of the working places and that will not come back to as it was before not fully. What consequences does that have for working life, for our social life, for infrastructure? And what does the effect that one and a half billion children have not been in school for six, eight, maybe 10 months, what effects does that have globally on, on our children? So there's lots to do. Of course, many Many organizations and nations are looking at this, but, but OECD with its huge databases and, and comparative traditions can really assist member states. But maybe we can use the crisis to do necessary reforms in a more modern way. David also had a chance to speak with Australia's candidate, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, probably less well known to EU listeners. So we'll let him introduce himself. My name is Matthias Cormann. For the last uh, seven years, I've served as the uh, Minister for Finance in uh, the Australian uh, government. I'm originally from Belgium. I was born and grew up in the German-speaking part of Belgium, but migrated to Australia in my mid-20s and you know, have essentially uh, pursued uh, my professional life and political career in Australia ever since. And you know, this is obviously a, a pretty significant period in our history. I mean, even before the coronavirus hit, um, this has been a period of increasing uncertainty and geopolitical complexity in many respects. And the OECD is you know, one of the most consequential international economic governance bodies in the world. I mean, you know, clearly, as the world seeks to recover, from the coronavirus pandemic, but as, as like-minded free market liberal democracies uh, seek to chart a pathway forward into the best possible future. The whole range of uh, issues on which like-minded countries need to work together in Australia as a country, uh, which is very much a globally focused open trading economy, which has gone through nearly 30 years of continuous growth prior to this crisis. You know, we believe that with our experiences, our background, um, you know, there are things that we can contribute a collaboration and cooperation between like-minded countries, a focus on solving problems, identifying best practice policy solutions is more important than ever. And, you know, I believe in that context that my experience and my background, both, you know, having lived half my life in Europe and half my life now in the Asia-Pacific, there's something that I can contribute. And if the member countries of the OECD agree, uh, then uh, I would look forward to serve. The Secretary General post has been with the Americas, with Mexico for three terms now. Would you consider that as a as a strong selling point? That that does Australia count as Asia, for instance, as opposed to Oceania? Uh, tell us about that for for balance purposes. Why that might be important? Well, well, I mean, look, you know, in the end, the OECD should pick the best person for the job. I mean, we're certainly not climbing like a geographical fairness bonus here. What we do believe, though, I mean, the Asia Pacific clearly uh, is, you know, very much the epicenter of global economic activity and growth, you know, over the years, you know, expected to be over the years and decades to come. It is very much an epicenter of geopolitical strategic competition. It is an area where I think there's opportunity for, for the OECD uh, to perhaps reach out 
more and, and to have stronger linkages and stronger focus. And, and certainly having been part of this um, region uh, for you know the last 25 years, I, I do believe that there's something that I personally can contribute, but certainly Australia's experience you know, with nearly 30 years of continuous growth and having gone through the coronavirus pandemic in a comparatively better position than just about any other advanced economy around the world. You know, I, I do believe that there is something that we can contribute from, from our perspective and that I personally can contribute given my experiences and background. And so what would you say to folks who are looking at Australia's success, whether it's economically or in terms of the pandemic, who would say, oh, oh, you know, easy for you to to talk. It's quite simple for Australia to to thrive on its own, you know, literally an island in the corner of the world. Talk about how Australia's perspective on the interdependence of, of nations in this age, and, and does Australia really feel that in its DNA, given its ability to be down under and, and on its own? Well, I, I don't think, I, I, I would completely reject the premise of this proposition that Australia is fine on its own. Australia became stronger and more prosperous and the living standards of people in Australia started to improve when we opened ourselves up to global competition and started to genuinely engage in open markets and free trade. The world is going to be a weaker, colder, you know, unhappier, less prosperous place if everybody you know, turns their back on each other. And the way to facilitate prosperity, increase living standards, peace and stability is by integrating our and aligning our economic interests. And, you know, to do that to the greatest extent possible on the basis of, on the basis of shared values and shared outlook, you know, is, is as important, if not more important today than it ever was. Thanks to David for bringing us the highlights of those interviews. And now let's move back to Brussels, where the European Commission this week proposed a plan it says would ensure adequate minimum wages for workers across Europe. Our reporter, Paula Tama, who covers labour issues, spoke to a number of different players in this debate, and you'll hear from them in just a moment. But first, let's hear from Paula herself. Hi, Paula. Hi, Andrew. So give us the potted version, if you like, of what the Commission proposed this week. So this week, the Commission presented a proposal to increase the level and coverage of minimum wage schemes across the EU. On Wednesday, they adopted a law that will force EU countries to review the way they set the minimum wage, either by law or by negotiations, to ensure that they are adequate and ensure a decent level of living standards for all European workers. Here is Job Commissioner Nicola Schmidt. We caught up earlier this week and he explained to me what that really means. I think this is an essential part of an economy that works for people. That's an essential part of a relaunch of the idea of a social market economy. What we are doing, we are setting objectives. We are setting a framework and a method. We are giving uh, member states tools to assess the level of their minimum wages in the context of the overall evolution of wages. That's what we are doing. Now, with everything going on at the moment, why is the Commission choosing to present this now? Well, this was something that was actually long overdue. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen had put it as one of the promises for her first 100 days in office. Then obviously the pandemic hit and this didn't happen. But she did put it in her State of the Union speech just in September, saying that minimum wages, wages work, work and it is time that work 
paid. And promising a legal instrument to make sure that that is the case. What's the problem here that the Commission says it's trying to fix? Well, the problem that supporters of this law are trying to address is that according to them, workers for from countries like, say, Romania or Bulgaria are willing to work for much less pay compared to a German or French counterpart, and that this is driving wages down across the continent, and that this in turn encourages companies to relocate away from countries with higher wages. I think it's a good idea because there is an increasing divergence in wage developments in the European Union. This is Luca Vizentini. We caught up earlier this week. He's the Secretary General of ETUC, which is an umbrella organization of trade unions. And this is not only unfair to all workers, especially in the countries, of course, where wages are the lowest, but it's also affecting negatively the economy of the European Union and undermining the potential of the single market. Having unfair competition based on labor costs and wages is simply introducing dumping in some countries and brain drains in others. But something else has also happened that has forced politicians to think about this issue differently. We begin with breaking news about the coronavirus. There are fears that the coronavirus outbreak could become a pandemic. We're entering a new and crucial phase in a fight against coronavirus. We know that the coronavirus doesn't respect any borders or nationalities. It hits the whole world. So during the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic, the people that kept our economy going, that were deemed essential, so to speak, were actually supermarket cashiers, warehouse employees, truck drivers, delivery workers, cleaners, the kind of jobs that happen to be paid minimum wage. The Commission actually estimates that one in six EU workers is a low-wage earner, and that's been increasing in recent years. Jobs Commissioner Nicola Schmidt explained it to me like this. We see that, indeed, a lot of people working at the bottom with the lowest wages are considered to be essential. The idea of adapting, adjusting, having fair wages in Europe and fair minimum wages for first, this is also a response to the crisis because we all say the future after this crisis cannot be as the past has been. And I think this is also a signal for the change we are preparing for the kind of new social contract we need for the after-crisis economy. Okay, I guess the question some people may have at this point is whether the EU even has the power to propose a law like this. Well, technically, no. The Commission can't set the level of pay or tell you countries to have a state-mandated minimum. But that's not what they've done. They've just done something a little short of that. So here's a quick explainer of how EU countries set their minimum wages and what the EU is asking them to do. So 21 countries have what's called a statutory minimum wage. That's a minimum wage that's set by law by the government. And to these countries, the Commission is asking to check their level against a number of parameters. And that's things like inflation, the gross national wage, purchasing power, productivity of labor and so on. And to check for adequacy. So the expectation here is that many will have to increase its level. On the other hand, all EU countries also have a system so, which is called collective bargaining, where wages are set in negotiations between trade unions and employers. Only six EU countries, though, and that's Austria, Cyprus, Denmark, Finland, Italy and Sweden, only rely on this instrument. The Commission is asking that countries where these agreements cover less than 70% of the workers introduce a plan to make sure that more workers are covered and that this is submitted to Brussels. 
So in the end, the commission isn't telling anyone what the wage level should be or who should get it, but it is nudging capitals to increase its level and to make it accessible to a larger number of workers. Okay, so those are the two camps, if you like. And how are countries responding? Not everyone very well. So the Nordics and that's Sweden, Denmark and Finland have very strong reservations about this proposal because they feel that it's impinging on their national competence and their method of setting wages through collective bargaining, which actually, to be fair, has given rise to some of the highest wages in the EU. Here's how Finland's Europe Minister Titi Tuppurainen explained it to me. We Nordic countries, Finland included, mm-hmm. we have some common worries. For us, it is of utmost importance that the EU should respect the Nordic labor market model, which is based on collective bargaining and high trade union density. So the EU should encourage collective bargaining in all EU member states and not require the Nordic countries to introduce a minimum wage legislation. So it is essential for Finland that in countries where the levels of wages are agreed through collective bargaining, the autonomy of the social partners is respected also in the future. Now, we should say that the Commission has explicitly said it will not force the Nordics or any other country to introduce minimum wage legislation, but this hasn't been enough to convince them. I asked Commissioner Schmidt about these concerns, and here's what he told me. I think that uh, the concerns the Nordics have expressed have totally been taken on, on board. They get more guarantees they ever had for their uh, particular uh, labor market uh, system, which personally I respect absolutely. So the Nordics, uh, I hope that once they have studied what we are proposing, they will notice that uh, their concerns uh, are not anymore justified. And that's for the Nordics, but you also have critics in places like Hungary and Poland who don't think that Brussels should have a say in this at all. When I spoke to diplomats from this camp, they told me that a directive from the Commission is an infringement of their national competences. And then, of course, there is also the industry's perspective. They don't like this at all either. Here is Marcus Beirer, who is head of Business Europe, one of the largest employers' organizations in the EU. We think that uh, this can be particular damaging for those countries where social partnership and collective bargaining most works best, like in the Nordic countries or also some others. What we need to do is to invest in capacity building. And what we need to do is to strengthen the social partners in the countries where they're not strong enough. And this you don't do by just imposing it by law. Okay, and where do things go from here? So all of that makes for a heated debate in the council, but also in the parliament is not so clear because the socialists have been pushing this a lot. But the largest party, the EPP, has some reservations, as do also the liberals. So it's unlikely that the negotiations of this proposal will end before, let's say, spring next year. Got it. Thanks very much, Paula. Thank you. And now uh, Reem and Matt are back briefly. We're going to do our recommendations as we... Look forward to spending more and more time indoors. Uh, Reem, what do you have? 
there's this Netflix film called The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And I really think it's very apropos. First of all, it's an amazing film. Like everyone in the movie uh, just is wonderful actors. But also I think it's very apropos because it reminds us that, you know, U.S. politics uh, has gone through some very difficult, uh, very aggressive, very violent uh, moments. And, and America has recovered. And so this is the trial of seven anti-Vietnam War activists in Chicago. It turned out to be a very politically motivated trial. And in the end, actually, one of the people who was on trial ended up serving, being a long, long serving member of Congress. Okay, sounds interesting. Matt, what have you got? My recommendation is this week, an Amazon Prime original, I think they call it. So anyway, the recommendation is called The Man in the High Castle, which is based on a Philip K. Dick sci-fi novel. The premise is that the Germans won World War II by uh, dropping an atomic bomb on Washington, and it's set some some years later. Uh, it's, it's quite an, I, I think, interesting way to kind of reflect on how the world might have turned out uh, differently. Okay, and what we should also recommend, above all, just ahead of the US election, is Campaign Confidential, the uh, series that Christina, our producer, and Ryan Heath have been slaving away on for months. Um, the great thing is the episodes are organised by theme, so this is a great time to kind of binge listen, get up to speed uh, ahead of Election Day on Tuesday, and we will be back with a special edition of the podcast combining Campaign Confidential and EU Confidential next probably late Wednesday or Thursday depending on how things pan out it's like a Marvel movie it's a crossover yeah exactly they were bringing together the, the superheroes superheroes okay and on that and on that, that note Reem uh, Matt thanks very much thank you bye and that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential next week we'll bring you a special episode on what we expect to be the big story then although this year you never know but of course we're talking about the US election we'll have an expanded reporters roundtable with analysis and reaction from around Europe and the United States and depending on how the news is looking we may even bring it to you a day early so that could be some point on Wednesday perhaps Wednesday evening so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get that episode as soon as it lands. Before that, Ryan Heath will bring you another episode of Campaign Confidential. That will be on Monday, so a day earlier than usual, with a guide to how you can watch election night like a pro. So plenty to keep you going between now and election night. In the meantime, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 